welcome to A View in Focus, the show where we talk with entrepreneurs from technology startups and high growth companies. We'll get to hear their stories about entrepreneurship, leadership, strategy, management, and fundraising. I'm your host, Dino De Palma, managing partner at True North Advisory, where we work alongside entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and PE firms as their strategic advisors. I'm happy today to spend time with my partner and colleague and longtime friend, Andy Miller. Andy Miller has been the CEO of multiple growth companies, including IPC, Polycom, Tanberg, and has led go-to-market strategies for companies like Cisco and Broadsoft. Welcome, Andy, to uh, our podcast. Good to be with you, Dana. Thank you for the invitation. Andy, maybe, you know, before we get going, I know I've briefly described, uh, you know, some of the highlights of your career, but it'd be great to get uh, to know um, where you've been uh, over the past few years and maybe give us a little sense of uh, Andy Miller from a career perspective. Well, you're, you're gracious with the past few years, but it goes longer than that. Um, <laughs> I spent uh, my first uh, decade in the telecom industry with Northern Telecom and then moved to Cisco Systems in the uh, late 1990s and spent 10 years at Cisco in various roles running sales organizations in the federal space and enterprise. I uh, had a great opportunity to become the CEO of a company in Norway called Tanberg, which was a video conferencing system based in Norway, ultimately sold back to Cisco. Um, then moved to IPC as the president of financial services company uh, backed by Goldman Sachs and Silver Lake in New York City. Had the opportunity to then run Polycom uh, out in California, a video conferencing company, and along the way served on several boards, um, several that were startup companies such as uh, Gigamon, Bridgepoint, uh, Gigamon, which went public, um, served on the board of Broadsoft also, is where I met uh, Mike Tesla and Scott to begin with. And then to wrap it up, um, joined with Dino, Mike, Scott, and Jim to uh, help Broadsoft in their uh, enterprise venture and then ultimately selling to Cisco. So um, short version over over 30 years, but um, hopefully that's succinct. No, it's excellent. And uh, we'll definitely be able to um, go after a couple of interesting topics that I think uh, our listeners will be, be interested in from an entrepreneurship to how to uh, deal with uh, different size organizations. But, you know, before we, we, we go there, and, and I've known you for, for quite some time, but who I don't know is, who is Andy Miller as, uh, as, as uh, a younger version of Andy? What were you like? What did you do? Where'd you grow up? Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, still feel young, Dino. Um, I grew mm -hmm. up in, uh, in Washington, D.C., um, went to uh, public schools in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, was one of uh, three boys, um, so uh, kind of a roughhouse household. Uh, Youngest, oldest, where'd you fit there? Yeah. And then ultimately uh, went to school in South Carolina, went south from Washington, D.C. to the University of South Carolina, uh, go Gamecocks, and then entered um, the business world right out of, out of college. Did you uh, play any sports, any, any music? Uh, what were your interests as... Uh... Baseball, tennis, track in terms of uh, sports. Music was never musically gifted, but enjoyed, um, you know, all those great songs from the early 70s and 80s that no one seems to remember now. But And as, as you got, you know, you were, you were going through, obviously, your college years and just getting going, uh, what 
got you to the area that the tech area that we're in? Like what, what got you interested? Was it just luck of the draw? Like, did you have a passion for it? Maybe walk us through that a little as well. Well, I worked my way and I worked through uh, university all four years, um, 20 hours per week, um, actually stocking shelves in grocery stores for general foods. So I had a, uh, you know, one, a penchant for work ethic and two, um, on the sales side and support side, um, working for General Foods in college, understood what sales was and how to form relationships kind of at an early stage during university. And then I did get, a, in fact, a lucky break. I, uh, I had a, a friend of a friend that was starting with a small company called Jarvis in Baltimore, Maryland, which sold key systems and PBXs against AT&T right at divestiture. So it was kind of a luck of the draw through friends and family I uh, was able to start there as a kind of the first sales rep in Baltimore, Maryland. So had had a love for the sales side and kind of lucked into the technology side. And and you know, you mentioned something about work ethic. You know, often I hear some, you know, new entrepreneurs saying they 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 want to start their own company because they want to be their own boss and maybe not work that hard. But you know, walk us through the different companies you've been at from the beginnings to running companies like uh, Polly and Tanberg, you know, the amount of investment you needed to make uh, to sort of <laughs> increase your good fortunes uh, from a perspective of being successful. Well, I think one of the, one of the things that I learned early on is, um, is it's a baseball analogy, which is 90% is showing up. And one of the things that, you know, I took from my days early on, especially at Cisco was you had to be out there. And I know Dino, you've traveled the world, but, um, I probably was on an airplane, if not every day, every other day in almost all 10 years of Cisco, just getting in front of customers, forming relationships, you know, whether it's um, having that breakfast, lunch, or dinner, uh, taking the time to, you know, assertively get in front of the partner or the customer and just really being there. And I think a lot of people as entrepreneurs tend to uh, not do that, but I, I really believe in that, you know, 90% is showing up and establishing those, those relationships. And when you establish those relationships, which, you know, I can tell from our partnership that you've maintained them over a, the long journey, how do you do that? Right? Because you go from company to company, uh, but you're going to have to keep that circle to continue to be successful. What guidance would you give? Like, how did you manage the relationships and to keep them through 20, 25 years and to keep them at a point where they're successful, that people still want to speak to you? Like, Maybe just provide some guidance around that. I think it's just you know doing the right thing and treating people as they would want to be treated. I've hired quite a few people from Cisco into um, multiple companies that I've run, and to this date, even in our partnership, have you know kind of a a list of relationships going back twenty five years. So I think it's doing the right thing, treating people as you want to be treated. Um, one of the things that I learned maybe the hard way that I was naive about when I took my first CEO role overseas in Norway was that you know, the, the Cisco mentality was the approach that works for everyone um, in terms of both the um, go-to-market strategy plus the drive, drive, drive. And what I learned is you know, culture isn't the same worldwide. It's really the values and attitudes are, and culture is different in every country, sometimes in every city every state. So you have to really treat people, you have to understand their background, you have to understand their values and attitudes. 
And when you do that, you just form like you, Dino, through music or sports, myself through your sports. Um, you just learn how to have a conversation and again, treat people like they want to be treated. I want to double click on, on hiring because I, I think it's probably one of the, the more challenging work that we have to do as, as, um, as a manager. Maybe walk me through, you know, as you were building your company, how did you continue to, to make the right hires? When did you know when it wasn't the right hire? And maybe some guidance on how quickly one should move if we think we've went the wrong way. Well, I think you and I both have made some great hires, but we've also made higher mistakes. And looking back on it now, I think each one of those hiring mistakes that I've made, I knew at the time, but I was either in a, a time crunch to get someone in that position, or there was just something about that particular person or for that particular role that just wasn't right, but went forward anyway. So I think, you know, in looking back, getting to know the person better in terms of their family, their you know, individual style, how they fit into the group, their work ethic, their background. Um, I think those are just really important to spend more time with the person to make sure that they actually will fit right into that role versus sometimes a knee-jerk reaction because your, your headcount may be going away that particular quarter or because the board may be asking you to fill a particular role with a particular person. And you may feel like that that's not the right person to hire. So there's sometimes political influence, sometimes there's timing influences, but looking back, I literally can cite each one that um, wasn't the right hire. And you know, now that I know I'm, I'm much more careful and much more, um, much more perspective of spending more time and making sure that it really is the right person. And once you did know, um, you know, how, quickly should one move like how you know you always want to have empathy in how you do it but how quickly should one move if you know it's not working like what's your guidance around how best to to, to navigate those challenging uh, issues well i think you also have to use your team to give you input as well uh, it can't just come from yourself you know, the team will see different attributes of a particular person so you know you want consensus as best as you can but my philosophy is that the sooner the better, if it's not a right fit for you, if it's not a right fit for them, it's actually better for them to move on to something that is the right fit for them. And it's better for the company to be able to bring on someone that can actually do the job. So um, I'm not a fan of elongating the situation if you actually know that it's not the right person. It's better for both parties to act sooner. So, and you talked about feedback. I know as organizations get larger, and you're one of the executives, whether you're the CEO, but you're in the C-suite. Getting real-time feedback, um, I found, got more and more difficult uh, as the company continued to grow. You know, when we were five, six, seven, eight people, it was easy. When we were 200, getting feedback was just more challenging. How did you deal with that as you grew the organization and you were one of the executives to get feedback from the organization of what was working, what was not working, how we could do better, uh, what the culture was like, uh, were people excited about the view and strategy of the company? How did you get the feedback that was meaningful to you so you could continue uh, down the path of, of success? Well, when you're leading an organization, for the most part, people will tell you all the good things, but not the things you need to be aware of. So I always like to get it directly from the employees and not from, not always from the executive team or from the board. 
So I'm a big fan of doing um, all hands meetings. Um, I think at each company I run, we've had monthly all hands meetings where we were very open with Q and A. There wasn't anything scripted. There wasn't a, any topic that was prohibitive. It was, um, you know, open, kind of open commode in terms of what's working, what's not taking feedback, taking that feedback and working with the team to implement that feedback and just continuing that that culture of openness. And that to me is the best, the best way to do it. And then secondly, just being available to employees, you know, walk around the office. It's very easy to be tied to your office, you know, 12 hours a day in meetings. But I always found that if I could get up and either walk around and, and say hello and get feedback or wherever I am in the world, make sure that I take time to invite someone to a breakfast or a meal and all hands meeting to make sure I get global input. But you know, that, that raises a good point. Um, I, I'm like you, I like the hands-on approach, but have you thought through, you know, the pandemic has changed that quite a bit, right? Most of us are virtual, we're starting to go back, but have what would guidance, what do you think about how we do this in this brave new world? I know we're coming back to, you know, going more face-to-face, -face, but how do we do that in this uh, new, uh, probably current post-pandemic environment? I think, um, I mean, you know, I hadn't up until uh, a few months back, I hadn't seen you in almost two and a half years. True enough. It's funny because nothing changed. Um, <laughs> well, I, I was sad, but other than that, it was it was okay. <laughs> I did miss I did miss the uh, meals and your and your love for wine. Um, yeah, you know, I think in the hybrid world, we 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 just have to use technology. It, nothing's ever going to replace being there in person. Um, but in lieu of that, because sometimes life isn't what we want it to be, we have to learn how to use technology and do the same thing. You know, do do the calls over. Zoom or, or, or meet or whatever it may be, and just be present, be, you know, be a listener, be able to go to the client and use the same foundation of conversation, but just over a different medium. And, you know, to that, to, to the point of being in touch, you've built global organizations. Um, and there's certainly differences between being building a US team, building a team out in Europe building a team out in Asia, there's a lot of obviously uh, common traits, but there are differences uh, that you need to look to, to to be able to build a global team. What is your advice in, in that area? How do you build a team that has success yet sees the strategy, can be successful, but understanding the, all of the local differences? Well, like I said earlier, I think the most important lesson I learned, I, I remember when I went to Tanberg early on, you know, coming from Cisco, uh, the company's growing like crazy. The stock price is growing. Everything is going good. Um, when I joined Tanberg, I tried to bring in that that mentality into a Norwegian company, and they basically looked like me, like I was uh, you know, from a different world. And what I what I didn't understand was that you know the values and attitudes of whether it's in Norway or whether it's in China or whether it's in Singapore or whether it's in you know, ANZ is very different. And to be able to, you know, understand their values and attitudes, and be able to understand where they're coming from, uh, to be able to listen, then you start learning that um, that how to basically articulate the company's vision that can be individualized to each country or each, you know, geographic territory. 
And that's probably my biggest takeaway is that sometimes in America, we try to, you know, act like, you know, how we run our business or we're used to running it. But in Norway or in China or in Hanzi, as I said before, it's taken differently. So being able to adapt to that, you know, as an executive to me is probably the most important um, kind of life lesson in business. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. I want to switch topics a little. You've had um, different roles from CEO to head of, of go-to-market, and you've done that for small and larger companies. But between being a CEO and call it head of go-to-market, uh, how do you differentiate between those two positions and what similarities are there? Just so for the purpose of our audience who um, are looking at even potentially growing their career, moving from CRO to CEO, what, what should they, they, they think of? Like what, what are the, the key differences? Although they're both executive roles, uh, how, did, how, how did you think of one role versus the other? Well, I think you know, for me, my, my love is go to market. So as um, when I was the CEO, I made sure that I, two things. One is that the chief revenue officer, you know, I gave uh, empowerment to because it could, and I'm very guilty of wanting to dive in and provide my um, insight to the CRO. So one is to learn how to kind of let go and trust them to do their job, um, but also keep in that go to market uh, mentality. And then secondly, you need to, if your strength is go to market, you have to surround yourself with a really strong product person. If you're a CEO whose strength is product, you have to surround yourself with a strong go to market person. And likewise, so I think in, whether it's a board or a company, um, you have to surround yourself with the, the talent that will offset your, your best practice and make sure you have a you know, 360 degree team that's really running um, within all the areas, technology, go to market, et cetera. And, and to that point, did you have any mentors, Andy, that helped you along the way uh, to, as, as you, your career continued to, uh, to accelerate? I did. I kept, I kept um, you know, a number of mentors from former companies um, that really helped me um, almost like a kind of almost like an executive coach per se, uh, a gentleman from Cisco who ran worldwide operations. Um, had been my mentor for a number of years. Uh, a board member from Polycom had been my strong mentor that I would look at as someone that I could sit down with on a monthly basis and not talk about the particular issues in the company, but talk about you know, how is I doing? What should I be doing different? Um, what advice do you have to me? Sometimes it was even career-wise, you know, what, what boards to join or you know, how long should you stay at this particular position? So those mentorships were were invaluable in terms of uh, going forward. And I, you know, think everybody, whether it's an executive coach or hopefully, a, you know, a, a long-term mentor that will be willing to be honest with you is, is something that's um, just very important. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I had uh, one at Acme as well. One of our, our uh, board members, Gary Bowen, uh, was instrumental in, in uh helping me along the way in, in, in my career. One of the things you, you touched on is, is go to market. And there's always a debate between direct versus channels. When do you go direct? When do you leverage channels? Do you do both? Uh, clearly one of your areas of, of expertise. 
maybe give us some guiding principles on um, the difference between direct, how to build a channel strategy and timing of when to do one versus the other. And I know there's no magic here, but as an expert in this area, it, I, we would all benefit from hearing your perspective. Well, gr growing up at Cisco, um, you know, we called it high touch via selective distribution, meaning that you always try to be close to the customer and intimate with the customer, but it was fulfilled and delivered through the channel. So that's kind of the way that I started my career. And you know, whether um, it's a direct, whether it's channel, you have to have a framework built. Um, and typically you'll, you'll, you'll invoke both. You'll, you'll, you'll have a direct side, uh, you'll have uh, a channel side. The channel could be master agent, could be a value-added reseller, it could be a carrier, it could be an, an, uh, an enterprise strategic partner. So, and what we do, Dino and I at, at, at True North is we have a number of companies and we always start with that channel framework in terms of um, understanding how is the product to be delivered, um, vertical markets that you're participating in, uh, geographic markets you're participating in, in, in each channel model is somewhat different, but to establish a framework and be able to walk through and understand, you know, when, when do you go direct? When do you go high touch? How do you fulfill the products? And then the back end of that is how are they supported? How are they serviced, et cetera? So um, I think there's no right answer in terms of you know, direct indirect, but there is a right answer in having a framework to understand the choices and opportunities. No, I, I, I agree. I think that's um, the way you and me see the world similarly and, and we provide our our clients at True North uh, similar work. And from that, from, from the channel perspective, walk us through uh, briefly, obviously, but how you structure that channel model. Uh, how, how, how should uh, our, our clients and, and the broader audience think of how to structure those, those channels? Well, like I said, you, you know, you start with a framework and we call it kind of crawl, walk, run in terms of, um, you know, what to start off with. And, and, you know, the crawl piece is kind of testing, um, is your product, you know, a complex product that needs to be fulfilled by um, a systems integrator? Is it a, you know, an easily packaged product that could be actually sold through a master agent and simply delivered? Um, is it a hybrid product that actually needs both? Um, you have to look at your competition in terms of you know how they're fulfilling the product and just take a step back, even before you hire the first person, whether they're direct or, or, or channel, um, you really have to establish that, you know, that guiding principle of how you intend to distribute. And then from there, you bid out your team, you've got to build out the partner compensation, you build up, you have to build out the portal. There's a whole methodology around that. But You've got to get it right from the beginning because making that change in the middle is very difficult going from direct to indirect or going from indirect to direct. So you want to get it right at the outset. And, you know, you just reminded me, it's, it's a little off topic, but you mentioned hiring the right people. Uh, as you're hiring your, your team, uh, especially in the entrepreneur startup world, how much do you value uh, providing the team equity as well as you know the, their salary? Where, where does equity fit into this? Well, I think on the, on the uh, in the go to market side of life, uh, sometimes you know, people say salespeople are, are motivated by money. Um, I, I like to motivate both by cash flow and motivate by equity. 
And in the early, early days, um, you know, slightly tilted to the equity side, because you want to get people really motivated about what they're trying to accomplish. And in those early days, it's, you know, 24 by seven, it's, you know, it's hard, it's a sacrifice on the family, it's probably a lot of travel. And to incentivize them that they're actually part of the company, that they're owners, tends to, I think, provide a better glue with the team and the mission that they're focused on. Clearly, there's a cash compensation that's needed just to pay the bills, but depending upon the particular role and the particular, um, you know, time frame, um, I believe equity is a strong, strong um, motivator. No, that that makes uh, perfect sense. You know, one of the final questions I wanted to ask Andy is, you know, if you didn't start selling PBXs uh, early on in, in in your career, what what would Andy Miller be doing today? Oh, that's a good question, Dino. I mean, I've I've uh, you know, been really blessed in my business career, um, and have loved the the ability to kind of see. I mean, from selling the first uh, PBX against AT and T in Baltimore, Maryland, to be able to fast forward to the type of clients we have today. They're involved in, you know, AI or identity or um, all the CX um, um, evolution of this market has been really fascinating you know, in terms of how it's um, evolved. So you know, outside of being, uh, I guess, major league baseball player um, or an actor in Hollywood, I think that this has been um, a, uh, you know, it's just been, uh, it's been a wild ride. I've got to establish great relationships such as you and um so I, I really can't think of anything um, different than I would have liked to do. I clearly see you, though, as a movie star out in California leading the way in Hollywood. So I think uh, once you're done with True North, maybe it could be uh, phase two of uh, phase three of uh, Andy Miller's career. Well, let's let's just let's keep moving forward at True North and um, having fun together. I think you, know, you and Mike and I and Scott, Josephine and Melissa, um, Jim, um, kind of have a, uh, a great cadence right now in chemistry. And um, you know, we, we're bringing on more clients and, and I can see us making a big difference in terms of their trajectory. And, you know, part of the, part of being fortunate as we have Dino is to be able to give back and, um, you know, helping these companies with lessons learned is probably the most, you know, valuable thing that we could do, you know, outside of philanthropy. So um, it's keep making a difference. Thank you, Andy. Uh, very well said. And thank you for joining us uh, today. We're excited uh, for you to be here. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be posting our episodes every other week. And please follow us on uh, LinkedIn and other social media platforms. So once again, Andy, thank you so much. Uh, it's actually fun getting to do this with you. Uh, a little different than uh, the work we, we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, look forward to maybe, uh, you know, version two of uh, the podcast with Andy Miller. Yeah, well, let's do it outside at your house with the beautiful view next time. <laughs> uh, happy to do that with uh, maybe uh, a nice glass of uh, Burgundy for you. Thank you. All right. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks, Andy.